Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. Thanks to all of you who came last Sunday to our picnic. All right, as picnicky as it was inside a building here with it raining outside. Thought we had a nice time, a uh, good turnout, <clears throat> a lot of food, way too much food, so that's a good thing. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks to all those who helped also set up, clean up, and all the other parts that went behind the scenes that you didn't see. Obviously, none of that stuff happens without them. Uh, today is going to be part two of a three or more part sermon on the issue of walking in the Spirit. So if you were not here two weeks ago, you've missed part one, I'll address it very briefly here. And while I often say this about these kinds of messages, every now and then it's like really true. Today's one of those days it's really true. Okay, I'm, Sometimes I say it's a two-part sermon. In reality, it's really just kind of two sermons that go together, and I call it that just for fun because I like that. Uh, but occasionally it's I'm preaching half a sermon. All right, So literally today I'm going to preach half of a sermon. I'm going to get to a point, and I'm going to stop. And it's even going to be a little bit abrupt. I did that on purpose Could leave you on a cliffhanger, wonder what's happening next. So if you do not come back next week, you're going to be completely and totally confused as to where this is all going. So uh, just remember that as we get started here. We're going to read Galatians 5, 16 to 26, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please now look at verse 16. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If you will, bow your heads with me for just a moment. Father, we do ask that your Spirit be active here amongst us. We need to understand your Word today, to understand the idea that Paul is presenting to us so that we can go out and live it. We want to allow you to live your life through us. We want to be faithful and obedient to that because that is what we have been called to. That is what the gospel is here for, so we can die to self and live our new lives in you. I pray that today will be a step in that direction of understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to pick up uh, pretty much right where we left off last time here in verse 16. If you'll recall, we were beginning to try to understand exactly what Paul means by this phrase here of walking by the Spirit. This is an important phrase, uh, particularly at this point in Paul's argument in Galatians as he is giving this to us as the antidote to allowing our freedom to become an opportunity for the flesh. However, I would say that even apart from the context of Galatians, this is still an important phrase to understand 
because it represents an idea or a concept that is heavily used within the broadest spectrum of Christianity that is, however, I believe, not well understood. You see, this phrase, walk by the Spirit, is just one of many ways that the New Testament writers use to describe how the believer and just the normal Christian experience, we'll kind of leave it broad for the moment, should have a real, meaningful relationship with the Holy Spirit. I don't think that I have ever met a believer of any stripe, variety, flavor, denomination, or otherwise who would deny that. As far as I can remember in any conversation I've ever had with any Christian of any sort, they would affirm that we as believers should have some kind of relationship with the Spirit, and yet you don't even have to be a Christian to recognize that as you look across the broadest spectrum of Christianity possible, that A, there's a great amount of disagreement about what that exactly means, and then B, there's also a great amount of disagreement as to what that looks like in a person or church's life. And the reason you can know that, uh, even as an unbeliever, is because there is probably no other aspect of, again, the Christian experience broadly defined that is as publicly aired, A-I-R-E-D, as uh, is the, the people's views related to the Spirit. I mean, for example, when was the last time that you were home on a Saturday or a Sunday and you're flipping through the channels and you come across a church service that is focused on a group of believers on their knees genuinely repenting of sin? And that's it, okay? Nothing else. It's just, it's just a television show of people genuinely repenting of sin. Anyone ever had that, seen that show? No? Uh, or maybe you've run across the TV preacher of the ministry, perhaps, where all he does is he tells people, look, don't give money here. Go out and give money to others, and then go out and do good works to your neighbors and to one another and to the community at large. Anyone run across that show? No? Yeah, you, you've probably never seen those because... That doesn't really make for good television. That, that doesn't uh, seem to compel people to send money to the person who is preaching. But if you just let some TV preacher stand up there and he takes off his suit coat. Anybody got a suit coat on today? I could borrow. You know, he takes his suit coat off and he starts whipping it around at people and people start falling down like dominoes and you know, supposedly being slain by the Spirit or whatever is happening in that particular moment. Um, everyone's going to listen to you. I mean, you'll be on television, and people will send you money faster than you could possibly count it. So, you know, what do you do with that? Because that's never happened here at Cornerstone. Uh, well, there was one time that a guy, uh, when I was, I was praying, very opening uh, uh, part of the sermon, I'm praying, and all of a sudden I hear someone snore. I mean, loud, really loud. So I'm like, wow, I put him to sleep in the, in the prayer. That's not a good sign for the rest of the message. I open my eyes. The guy's having a seizure. Eyes roll back in his head, going stiff. He's like, it freaked everybody out. Like we ended up, we canceled the service right then. You know, we cleared the room, called 911. He was okay in the end. Uh, but that's the, apart from that guy, that's the only time anyone's ever passed out in our service. Right there, that was the one time. So what do you, you know, are, are we right and the people you see on television wrong? Or are they right and we're wrong? Or is it not a question of right and wrong? Is it just different? You know, how, what do you do with this? Well, if I may, and believe me, I may, uh, I think that rather than trying to approach it from that perspective of looking at like what happens in this moment or that moment and trying to like dissect that thing to death, I, I don't really think that's helpful. I think what would be better is that we just continue doing what we started doing two weeks ago, and that is trying to put together a biblical framework for understanding what it is that this phrase Paul uses here meant to both him 
and to his original readers. Uh, we began that two weeks ago by trying to get a better understanding of this word walk. And if you were here then, you know that this word walk simply means to live your normal everyday life. And it's used this way often in the New Testament. We have, I mean, I gave you a huge list of things that we are supposed to walk in. We're supposed to walk in truth, supposed to walk in light, supposed to walk in love, supposed to walk in good works, etc., etc., etc. I gave you probably 15, 20 of them. Uh, conversely, there are things we're told not to walk in. We're not supposed to walk in the flesh. We're not supposed to walk in our trespasses and sins. We're not supposed to walk in idleness and darkness. Again, probably 15 or 20 things I gave you last time. And after I went through that sampling of both categories, the positive and the negative, what we are supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do, I asked you this question. I said, do you get the sense from any or all of those examples, both positive and negative, that these are supposed to be regular, constant features of our lives or just occasional, temporary, come-and-go kinds of experiences? And you guys, being the astute biblical scholars that you always are, got the answer right, you realize that in all of those examples, those are supposed to be constant, regular features of our lives, not just temporary come-and-go kinds of things. You know, we're not supposed to just love occasionally or walk in truth occasionally or not walk according to the flesh occasionally or not walk in idleness occasionally. We should be doing or not doing those things all the time. That's, that's what the, the whole point of the metaphor of walking is being used for here. Because unless you're like physically handicapped, you walk all the time. All day long you walk. When you get up, you walk. Until you go to bed, you walk. You walk for important things. You walk for completely mundane things. It just is an all-day, everyday kind of things. And so as we apply that to Galatians 5, we realize that whatever it means to walk by the Spirit, well, whatever that is, it's not just supposed to be a temporary, occasional uh, emotional, when I'm feeling spiritual in a church service or in a moment of ministry kind of thing. It's supposed to be an everyday kind of thing. An every moment of everyday kind of thing. Never stopping, all day long, walking by the Spirit. And the reason why I emphasized that the way I did last time was because of things like those TV preachers and the effect that they have had on you. And you say, me? Stacy, I, I know like who, kind of people you're talking about. They haven't affected me at all. I look at those guys and I'm like, yeah, charlatans, whatever, you know. I, I'm not tricked by them. And I believe you. I really do. I don't know who you picture as I kind of use those examples. Uh, I know you've got a face or a name in mind as I'm saying that. And I believe that you probably aren't duped by them. But I'll just say that as a whole, believers, I think, have defaulted more and more into viewing the work of the Spirit as falling into the realm of the amazing and the spectacular and the temporary and the occasional and the emotional and the spiritual, etc., etc., and almost never spend any time thinking about the role of the Spirit in the normal and the mundane and the everyday and the little things and the, the things that don't get noticed and that don't ever make a television show. I just don't, I don't get that sense from most believers that that's how they're thinking about the Spirit. It's almost as if we've allowed those TV preachers to limit our field of understanding about the Spirit to just one little area. And if anything's outside of that, we don't know what to do with it. So what I was trying to do last time was like blow that up. Like I, I don't want you to think that. I want you to have bigger view, a bigger view of the Spirit than what those TV preachers would give you. So you may never see many big things in your life, but as I said last time, and this is kind of where I ended, for every 
My guess is for every one big, genuine thing the Spirit does, there must be tens or hundreds of thousands of little mundane, everyday, but no less miraculous things the Spirit does in our lives that nobody ever pays attention to. Every time you say no to sin, that's the Spirit. That's a miracle that happened in your life that you said no. Every time you have joy or love or peace or patience, and if you're a parent, you need a lot of that, right? Miracles every day in your house. Uh, you know, these are works of the Spirit, and we need to remember that and just expand our understanding of what it is the Spirit does in our lives. It's just so much bigger than this. That was my point. Now, let's turn our attention to the second half of this phrase this morning. We know now that whatever this means is supposed to be a part of our normal, everyday life, but now... The next question is, so what does it mean, right? Like, what, what do we do with it? Well, let's just begin, perhaps, with the obvious by identifying what spirit we're referring to because I never like to assume things in a room because I don't know who's in the room. And if you're not aware, what Paul is referring to here is what we call the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point because my assumption is that most of you in here understand who this is. But we are talking about God, the Holy Spirit here. We believe that God is a trinity. That means he is three persons, one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, each person of the trinity is unique and, and distinct, and yet all are of one substance, making just one God. And yeah, that blows my mind too, because of all the areas of doctrine that I look at, that I struggle with and try to understand and can't comprehend, I think the trinity has to be at the top of that list. How can God be three in one? How can God the Father be distinct from God the Son and God the Spirit, and yet all three make one God? And I think about it too long, and my brain begins to melt and ooze out of my ears, and it's not pretty, you know. It's above me. I believe it. I see it in Scripture. I can defend it. I can teach it. But I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I fully comprehend it, like I understand every aspect of it, because quite frankly, I just don't. It's so far above me. These are thoughts that my finite mind just cannot fully and truly comprehend. But regardless of whether I can fully comprehend it or not, it is true, and the Spirit is a part of it. So just a few quick examples, because I like to make sure we ground our thoughts in Scripture. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus affirms not only the Trinity, but the fact that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit make up that Trinity when he sends people out to baptize in the name of all three. Uh, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, this is the Ananias and Sapphira story. Uh, the apostles tell Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then they come back in just a moment later and said, you haven't lied to man, you've lied to God, so they're affirming that the Spirit is God. 2 Corinthians 3.17, probably the clearest reference in the New Testament where Paul just says it point blank, now the Lord is the Spirit. There you go. Okay, the Lord is the Spirit, the Spirit is the Lord, he is God. Obviously, I could keep going. I'm hoping we're on the same page. Whatever this phrase means, it's referring to the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. Now, having clarified the obvious, because I wanted to make sure that wasn't left out, I want us to pause now for just a moment, and I want to ask a question that at first may seem only partially related, but I think as you consider it a little more, it's going to help us out a lot in a moment. And sometimes I ask rhetorical questions, and I don't want you to answer out loud, Today, I want you to answer out loud. I'll just make it clear for everyone so no one's confused. If you're ready, here you go. If you are a believer in Jesus, and if you're not, you don't have to answer this question, but if you are a believer in Jesus, do you believe that Jesus lives within you, yes or no? Okay, very good, all right? I mean, that's what we tell people, right? That Jesus dwells within me, that he lives inside my heart, which is 
If you really break that phrase down, it's kind of strange sounding. But anyway, I know what we mean by it, and I'm glad you believe that. I believe it too. Now, as a quick follow-up question, let me ask you this as well. Do you also then believe that the Spirit lives within or dwells within you? Yes or no? Yes? Okay. Very good. I do as well. All right, so we've got Jesus living within us, and we've got the Spirit living within us. Is, is our heart like a duplex? An apartment building? Are they roommates? And I'm not trying to be irreverent in any way, but I am trying to ask it in such a way as to get you to think a little bit about why you answered yes to two separate questions and how you see those two questions going together. Because I think a lot of us probably have never really thought super deeply about either question, much less with how they relate to one another. You know, most people, myself included, I find, are content to just grab hold of a truth statement, such as, you know, Jesus lives within me or the Spirit lives within me, and we grab onto that truth statement, and then we're like, yay, we got it, okay? And it's good. Those are true statements, and we want to hold on to them. But I, I find not many of us ever think deeply about them, and not only that, but too many of us act as if those kinds of truth statements are like cans in a pantry versus threads in a tapestry. You say, what in the world? Well, I, I think about when I go to my kitchen, we're going to cook dinner, and I want to make green beans, I open my pantry door and I look in and I see a can of green beans and I grab it and pull it out. And the nice thing about that is, you know, the green beans are self-contained, right? I've got a little can, green beans inside, label says green beans, nice and clean. I didn't mess with the can of corn, I didn't mess with the can of potatoes, I didn't mess with the can of anything else. It all came out one nice little package. Um, versus a tapestry, if I'm in Europe, which I've never been, but if I was going to go to Europe and I'm there in a castle and there's a beautiful tapestry on the wall and I notice a little thread sticking out, I'm like, what will happen if I pull that? You know, what's going to happen when I pull one thread on a tapestry? More's coming with it, right? Because in a tapestry, all those threads are interwoven. And I find that our theology is far more like a tapestry than it is like a pantry. E each belief that we hold affects other beliefs. And when I start pulling on one thread, inevitably I begin pulling other threads with it every single time. I can't pull it out like a can and just look at it as if it's like its own little unique thing that doesn't touch anything else. That's not how our theology works. And when you begin pulling on the two beliefs that Jesus lives within us and that the Spirit lives within us, you realize that pulling on one of those beliefs ends up affecting the other one. Because the reality is that these two beliefs are connected in Scripture. They're not separate ideas, they're, they're connected ideas. For example, probably the single best passage that I could take you to this morning for this is Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. I'll put it on the screen here in just a moment, but listen for now. The, the beauty of Romans 8 is that the context there is almost identical to what we see in Galatians chapters 3, 4, and 5. I mean, it's almost exactly the same. He opens Romans 8 by saying uh, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and we'd say, well, why? Why is there no condemnation? Well, it's because the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So there you go, right? That's Galatians. It's freedom. You're now free. In Christ, you're free from the law. All the things we've been looking at for weeks now, he says it very clearly there. He then goes on to talk about those who live according to the flesh versus those who live according to the spirit. It's exactly what he's going to cover here in just a moment. So, I mean, over and over again, almost point by point, the context of Romans 8 and Galatians 3, 4, and 5, they have so much in common. So now we're going to pick up in verse 9. And what I want you to do as I put this on the screen behind me here is I want you to watch the interplay 
between Paul's comments about the Spirit dwelling within us and his comments about Christ dwelling within us. All right, you got it? It's a little quick mission, a little quick study. Spirit dwelling in us, Christ dwelling in us. Here we go. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit, of, uh, excuse me, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. All right, three verses, pretty easy. Did you catch all the references? Let's go back just in case you didn't. I want to make sure it's clear. In verse 9, he makes it clear that if the Spirit is not in us, one more, I think. There we go. That if the Spirit is not in us, then we don't belong to Jesus. Okay, everybody see that? If you don't have the Spirit in you, you're not Christ. Verse 10, he switches from the Spirit dwelling in us to Christ being in us. Okay, so it was Spirit, now it's Christ. Verse 11, he says it two times that the Spirit dwells in us. So we go Spirit, Christ, Spirit, Spirit. All dwelling in us. Everybody see that? You with me? Everybody, yeah, no, okay, go to sleep. You got an extra hour, so you shouldn't be like that. Um, Did anyone notice that I skipped something? Back at the end of verse 9, Paul made this reference to the Spirit of Christ. Spirit of Christ. I want you to just think about that for a moment. The Spirit of Christ. Does that strike you as being an unusual way of referring to the Spirit? Hmm. You know, I found that many believers, not all, um, but many, don't normally uh, seem to think about or talk about the role and work of the Spirit in relation to the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying they don't believe that. It's just not what you hear when people talk about it at first. Uh, For some reason, though, we're very comfortable with thinking and talking about the Spirit in relation to God the Father, right? We call God's Spirit all the time, or the Spirit of God. That kind of generic way of referring to it is very comfortable for us. And yet, to refer to it as Christ's Spirit specifically, it seems almost kind of odd. It's not our normal way of talking about the Spirit. It's Jesus' Spirit, Christ's Spirit. It sounds a little weird. And yet, I would point out that it shouldn't sound weird. Uh, If you understand that Jesus is the Father's Son, and that God is the Son's Father, then you really shouldn't have any problem with understanding the Spirit to be God's Spirit or Jesus' Spirit. All we're doing with all of those kinds of phrases is we're trying to express in our best human terminology the relationships between the Trinity. Okay, That's what we're trying to do there. I'm not saying it's perfect in every case and how we, we communicate it in practical terms on a daily basis, but that's, that's what we're trying to do. So in that sense, this really shouldn't seem odd at all. And not only should it not seem odd to us in that sense, but the fact of the matter is, is that the Spirit is referred to as being Jesus' Spirit multiple times in the New Testament. Just no one ever talks about it. I'll give you just a couple of quick examples here. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 Peter writes concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And recognize that as Peter is referencing this particular uh, comment here, he's thinking about the Old Testament saints. He's thinking about prophets back in the Old Testament who were writing prophecies for us to look at 
And he's saying that was the spirit of Christ within them. All right, so that's one example. Here's a little bit, one that's a little bit closer to home, uh, closer to where we're at in Galatians. In fact, it's in Galatians, Galatians 4, verses 6 and 7. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And because you have the son's spirit within you, well, guess what you are now? You're a son. You're counted as a son. You get to say, Abba, Father, to God as well. You're no longer a slave. So Paul's comment here in Romans 8 isn't an oddity in the New Testament. He and the other New Testament writers see a direct connection between the Spirit's indwelling presence in our life and Christ's indwelling presence in our life. These two are not separate truths. They are one truth. They go together. Which means then that as we come back now to Galatians, that whatever it fully means to walk by the Spirit, well, I can know in advance it's going to have something to do with Christ living out his life through me. It's going to have some kind of connection to that indwelling presence of Jesus in my life. It's going to connect us back into something Paul said earlier in this letter that I personally think is of utmost importance as we try to understand what Paul is getting at here in Galatians 5. And that was his comment back in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does Paul mean here when he says that it's no longer himself who's living, but that it's Christ who's living through him? I mean, how does Christ live through Paul? Or you, for that matter? How how is Christ going to live out his resurrected life in our lives on a daily basis, from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed at night? How is How is that going to happen? Well, I think that is a large portion of what the Spirit is doing in our lives. But to fully defend and explain that comment, you'll have to come back next time. Uh, I will, however, give you a hint as to where this is going, as well as a little homework assignment. So you can kind of prepare yourself somewhat for this as we come back to it next week. You know, I think that there is a very strong argument to be made in the New Testament for viewing the work of the Spirit and our union with Christ as being two sides of the same coin. I'm not saying one is the other. I'm saying they go together. They work together in unison, two sides of the same coin, that these are two threads that are just woven together in such a way, if you start pulling on one, you're going to start pulling on the other too. They're going to go together because they have to. And I fear that many believers have either forgotten this truth or have just never really connected those dots. So that's what I'm going to try to do a little bit for us next week is connect a few of those dots. And if you want to try to prepare yourself for that in some sense, um, take some time today, this week, and read through John 14 through 16. Now, you remember the context, I hope, because we've been in John, that part of John, a few times now, talking about love here recently. John 13 is the Last Supper. Uh, Judas leaves. The events that take Jesus to the cross happen then. Uh, John 14 through 16 is the last conversation Jesus has with his disciples. It's either had in the upper room or both in the upper room and on the way to the garden. He prays in chapter 17, and the next thing you know, he's arrested and everything happens. So this is the final conversation. And I want you to read through that section, and I want you just to notice all of the things that Jesus says about the work of the Spirit, particularly in relation to 
to what the Spirit does related to Christ. I'm trying not to give too much of an answer away as I <laughs> like word it, so hopefully I'm not confusing you more. Just look for what Jesus tells us about the Spirit's interaction with himself. The Spirit's focus on Christ. And prepare yourself with that for next time. Um, shameless transition. As we turn our attention now to the Lord's table, you know, this is another way in which we see our union with Christ. And you know, that not only has Christ given us his spirit, but he's also given us a tangible act to, to perform together as a, as a body in order to remember that we are now one with him and one with each other. And this is only one of two rituals the Lord gives us, this and baptism. And over the past couple of years or so now, the thing that has been striking me more and more as I've thought about both of these acts is how much they point us to our union with Christ. You know, you think about baptism, for example. You know, baptism, you see the public profession of an individual regarding their union with Christ. That They see this as the moment they are letting the world know, the church know, that they belong to Jesus. And, and God has given us an amazing, picturesque moment to, to encapsulate that with. If someone is immersed in the water, they are buried died with him, raised again to new life. It pictures our life being hidden with Christ. And so, uh, you know, in doing so, we're reminded that we've died with Christ, that our life is now his, we're one with him, and that is our hope going forward. In communion, you see the public profession of the church's union with Christ, coupled again with a very picturesque act of eating bread and drinking a cup. And in doing so, we're supposed to be reminded that apart from the body and blood of Jesus, we have nothing. And that's not just true of our salvation at the beginning of that process, right, of baptism. That's true as often as we eat and drink. The rest of our days, we never move past that need for Christ, our dependence on him, our need to be one with him. And so it's a great, great reminder. This is why Paul says, for example, 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I hope you recognize that when he talks here about proclaiming his death, yeah, we're proclaiming it, generally speaking, I agree with that. But more specifically, we're proclaiming that to ourselves and to one another. When I eat the bread and drink the cup, I'm, it's a tangible reminder to me that I still need Christ. I don't graduate from that. I don't move on. I'm never going to get past my need for him. I'm dependent on him every moment of every day until I take my last breath. And it's a way for me to proclaim that to you as well and for you to me. So just in a moment here, I'm going to pray. And when I'm done, uh, what I want to happen is I want everyone in here who's a believer in Jesus, if you're not a believer and you're visiting with us today, that's fine. Stay where you are. This is not for you. But for all of you who would claim to be believers in Jesus, I want you to stand up. I'm going to tell you to stand up, and you're going to walk and make lines around the outside here. There's two tables here in the back. And you're going to get to the table, and someone's going to be standing there, and they're going to serve you the bread. They're going to serve you the cup. And they're going to lead you in a moment together, six, eight of you at a time. You know, this is Christ's body broken for you. This is his blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of him. I want you to eat. I want you to drink. And then I want you to go into the middle, throw your cups away, and come sit down and wait quietly until it's time uh, for us to be dismissed. Jordan will be up here leading us in some uh, a song. You can sing along with that. But we want to take this moment. You say, why do we do it like this instead of doing it all together? Well, I think sometimes it's helpful for us to become active in the process. 
because it's too easy just to sit there and kind of go through the motions. But I think there's something or could be something special to have you actually have to get up and go with people you may or may not know. You might stand there next to a complete stranger and remember the fact that you're not just one with Jesus, you're one with that person too. You're one with them because they're your brother and sister in Christ around a shared gospel. And regardless whether your group is large or small, remember as you eat that we are doing this in remembrance of and in proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes again. And this is just a foretaste. One day you're going to stand before him with millions of brothers and sisters you don't know, and you're going to eat it with him around his table forevermore. In that prayer, will you bow your heads? And let's ask God's blessing on this time. Jesus, thank you that we have this act to be reminded of the fact that we have been made with one, excuse me, one with you through your body and blood. You shed your blood to pay for our sins. You gave your body to be a curse in our place on the cross. And now we all sit here this morning as the wonderful recipients of that great truth. We, we have your forgiveness, your salvation, and your righteousness that are ours when all we should have is punishment. And, and hatred from God, wrath from God. We should have no blessings, and yet we have all spiritual blessings in you. And so as we eat and drink this morning, may we be reminded that we are one with you, and that we are one with one another, and that there are no longer any divisions in this room. It doesn't matter where we're from, what color we are, what country we're from, what language we speak, what class we're in, how much money we make, what house we live in or don't live in. None of that matters in here. We are one body in Christ, and may we in unity this morning eat and drink in honor of you. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.